You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. It's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. It's April 23rd. Today's temperature is going to be 83 degrees, nighttime temperature 56. So there's some pretty magic numbers for vegetable gardeners in the Sacramento Valley. Friday, going to be 87. Friday night, 57 degrees. Saturday, partly sunny, 85. Saturday night, partly cloudy, 55. Sunday, 84 degrees, and Sunday night, 52. You kind of get the pattern here. A little bit higher spike of temperatures on Tuesday, where they're talking about 89 to 90 degree temperatures around our part of the valley here, with night temperatures 55, 57, 58, through to the mid part of next week. Well, you're for a long-time listener to the Davis Garden Show, you know... 55 degree night temperature, temperatures occasionally hitting 80 degrees during the day, means it is time to plant tomatoes. It's early perhaps for peppers and eggplant, but you can certainly go ahead and do them if you wish. They'll be just as happy, if not happier, if you put them in when things are a little warmer out there. But I know we're going to hit about 90 degrees early next week, and people who are already panicking about vegetable gardening because of uh, shortages and uh, perhaps a little more time on their hands than usual are going to be very concerned with temperatures in the upper 80s to 90, whether it's, quote, and I can't wait to hear it, too late to plant, end quote. Uh, no, this is perfect, absolutely perfect for these subtropical and tropical plants that we grow as summer vegetables. We really don't want you planting typically until night temperatures are in the mid-50s. Soil temperature is getting about where it needs to be now. Daytime temperatures in the upper 70s. And those peppers and eggplant and watermelons and okra and things like that really want it even warmer. So go ahead and go ahead now and plant them if you have them and if you want to get them in the ground because the key part now with humidities dropping down into the teens and low 20s and days hitting the upper 80s would be keeping them watered in the small containers. There's going to be any delay in getting them in the ground as much as a couple weeks and you're probably better off shifting them into larger containers, one gallon cans or something like that, to hold them for a couple more weeks while you get your beds ready. If you've got this space out there, particularly if they're raised planters, go ahead and get them planted. But bear in mind, you've got plenty of time. You've got the whole month of April, you've got the whole month of May, and we continue to plant many summer vegetables right on into June. We'll obviously talk more about the real heat lovers in subsequent programs, but uh, today is a good time to get started getting your tomatoes into the ground. We'd like to make you aware of some of the great cultural resources in the Davis area. The Hattie Weber Museum is one such resource filled with exhibits that highlight the history and development of Davis and the surrounding region. The building, originally located near the corner of 1st and F Streets, was constructed in 1911 as the Davisville Free Library. The museum is named after Hattie Weber, who served as the town librarian from 1906 to 1953. The restored building is now located at the corner of 5th and C Streets, on the northwest, northwest edge of Central Park in downtown Davis. For visitor information, call 530-758-5637 or access dcn.davis.ca.us. Go Hattie! 
I'd like to tell you about some of the other great programming here as well. High Country Music Radio with host Rusty Nail. You can join Rusty and explore the diverse musical styles and artists found within Americana, Alt Country, and Bluegrass. High Country Music Radio will feature those artists playing traditional rural music as well as those pushing musical boundaries. Together, you all will tap your feet to music born from the mountains, plains, rivers, and deserts. You can consider this an invitation from Rusty to leave the city behind. Live Tuesdays, 11 a.m. to noon, replays Tuesday, 7 to 8 p.m. That's High Country Music Radio, KDRT-FM, 95.7 on your radio dial. Here's a question. Per your advice, I have patiently kept my tomatoes in the greenhouse, awaiting an average soil temperature of 60 degrees Fahrenheit. That day finally arrived Saturday, and on Wednesday, we are to get the first 80-degree day in Antioch. That's in Zone 9B14. My concern is that if the weather is exceptionally... My concern is that the weather is expected to cool considerably in the days after. Should I wait, or should I plant now? And that's an email from David in Antioch, California. That's actually a great question. If it's a raised planter, um, plant, fine, soil will warm during the day, you should be okay. We're at the time of year where you almost might as well do it when you have time to get the job done, water properly. And this, if we cool down suddenly and dramatically, it'll slow the plant down considerably. But it's much less of an issue than it was the people rushing in here in the second week of March wanting to plant. Uh, it'll be a quick dip down cold. It'll be warm again. I think the plants will be fine. We went through this, by the way, in 2019. If you remember, the month of May was very cool and rainy all the way through May. Most people don't remember that. It, it was We actually had one day in the third week of May that was 23 degrees below our average temperature for the date. And it did slow them down. And we did get a lot of leaf crinkling and, and what I'd call environmental stress fact, uh, appearance and symptoms on the leaves. But they came back. What it really affected was that first crop of fruit. And that gets us to the blossom end rot issue. Before we go to blossom end rot, I don't understand how having some cool air for a day or two is going to change the temperature of the soil. It'll change the temperature. Of the, actually, change fast. It'll change the temperature of the surface a couple of inches. Uh, the soil down deep stays pretty even temperature. Um, it does. It doesn't fluctuate that quickly. But soil up near the surface will get cold, as will, by the way, the plant in a container. So I mean, there'll be some stress from that. But basically, the trajectory is right. The averages are where we want them to be going. I would be fine with planting if you had them in a greenhouse. The main issue would be the process of hardening them up from the greenhouse. So the greenhouse is very warm and doesn't get that cold at night, usually at this point, and humid, and the plants are lush and vigorous and haven't been exposed to wind or extremes like that. So I always like to take them out of my little greenhouse and set them on a table nearby where they're shaded a little in the late afternoon, but where they'll be out in the wind and get a little more exposed to the elements to harden them off. I haven't always done that, but I find that they're a little less stressed if I give them that brief period of acclimation for a couple of days. So I think, David, you can do either way. I suspect with the temperatures they're talking about, we're not going to be badly stressing the plants if you go ahead and put them in now that we've finally hit 60. I'd like to see 60 happening on the soil, you know, more nights in a row, but we're close enough. Okay, and for listeners who maybe are a little confused with all this tomato talk, because if you're new here, you may not have been planting tomatoes. There is a primer that Don has, is at redwoodbarn.com, and it is called Tomatoes, a Primer. It's excellent for giving you the basics and catching you up to speed. 
And that one's been there for quite a while. And so there's a, only a couple of things that have changed since I put that one up there. Uh, it'll give you the jargon we talked about. We use the term determinate, indeterminate. That simply refers to the growth habit of the plant. There's things that, are, that we call semi-determinate or dwarf indeterminate or kind of new. So you can read about those. That just basically tells you how big the plant is going to be, whether it continues to set fruit all season or in the case of the determinate types, whether they set fruit, ripen, more or less all at once, like those ones that are out in the field. Gives you some information about what's on the label, V, F, N, and those other characteristics. And then it brings you to, I think, what is an important topic, which is whether you want to plant heirloom or hybrid tomatoes. So heirloom tomatoes are ones that are not predate the first hybrid, uh, first hybrid, first commercially successful hybrid. So these are varieties from before about 1940, 1950. Tomatoes have been hybridized since the early 1900s, but the first one that really caught on in a big way, at least is my understanding, was Big Boy. Burpees Big Boy. My dad always grew Burpees Big Boy. It was a great, reliable producer, good vigor, good disease resistance, large fruit, high yield. And so he always made sure he had some of that. Before Big Boy came along, tomatoes were mostly not hybrid. They were open pollinated, which meant you could save the seed from one year to the next. And they were just what I call strains. They were varieties, but they weren't absolutely uniform from one seedling to the next because they were seedlings from a batch rather than carefully controlled crosses as a hybrid is. And the heirlooms that are with us today, and there are at least 50 that I could get at my little nursery alone, varieties have been around since the 19th century or the early 20th century that have either some interesting color, they're striped, or they're interesting shapes like the New Jersey Devil, which is elongated and comes to a point, or they have a unique story behind them like Mortgage Lifter, where it paid off the guy's mortgage from selling seedling plants, or names like Arkansas Traveler, Nebraska Wedding, you can imagine there's stories behind those, or there's something interesting about them. And what they're usually touted for is they have that old-fashioned flavor. You know, everyone talks about how they have that heirloom flavor. Uh, and they do, but I'll tell you this, that a fully ripened tomato from your garden, hybrid or heirloom that's ripened to its absolute peak on the vine, it doesn't matter in this climate if it's a hybrid or an heirloom, it's gonna be the best tomato you've ever had. Uh, so the heirlooms are fun and they're interesting to grow, but they do have a couple drawbacks. One is that most of them are from the East Coast or the Midwest, and we're not, we're in California. <laughs> Yeah, we don't have California heirlooms. We haven't been gardening here long enough for, it to be, for there to be any heirloom varieties in California. And so we grow them, some of the famous ones, probably the best known tomatoes, Brandywine. Well, that's from the Brandywine Valley of Pennsylvania, which is a lovely area, I've been there. It doesn't get 103 degrees in the summer there, and it's not 15% humidity when it gets hot. And so it's a different growing environment, and Brandywine tomatoes in the Brandywine Valley of Pennsylvania do extremely well. When you plant them here, it doesn't set fruit above about 85 degrees. Hey, We're above, of our summer is above 85 degrees every day. Yeah, our average high July and August is 93. And so it just drops the blossoms. They grow like crazy. I've grown them every so often. I'll plant one again just to, to prove it once again. You get an eight, 10 foot vine, vigorous. It has an unusually large leaf. It looks great. They flower, the flowers fall off and fall off and fall off. And I've had years where I grew a 10 foot brandywine tomato and got two fruit, two very large fruit. You know, two really good fruit, but it seemed like a pretty high use of space to big fruit. Uh, beef steak and beef master the same way, very popular in the upper Midwest. I can almost tell where someone is from when they walk in and say, I want those beef steak tomatoes. Well, now that is a generic term. 
but it's an actual variety as well. It's like a, it's an old heirloom. And then, then for a while there was a hybrid called beefsteak. Again, upper Midwest. So not 100 degrees on a July day. Muggy, but not 100 degrees on a July day. And they don't do it, very it well. It rains most afternoons. I mean, I'm from there. And yeah. Warmer nights, by the way, warmer nights than we have here and higher humidity, but not such high temperatures during the, during the day. Maybe 90 degrees, they're probably pretty uncomfortable, I would imagine. So, so many, many of the early, heirlooms, but aren't there good heirlooms that would be good to grow here? There are. There's just fewer of them. And this is the thing. So I've tested a lot of them. I've planted a great many of the heirlooms and found that some of them are reliably consistent producers, like Mortgage Lifter. I mentioned that one. Amish Paste, even though it's from Amish country, surprisingly does well here for the, gives a very late season crop, but it sets on the downswing of the temperatures and gives you a great crop for, you know, for sauces and things like that. So you need to ask people who've actually grown them and not just their rave about the flavor and all that because they're remembering it from their childhood. What's their actual experience with growing them here and how well they produce? So we don't have that many heirlooms that, that are reliable, consistent, heavy producers here in the Sacramento Valley. Well, I think there's good news because we have new things. You can't really call them heirlooms because they're not that old. But right. A, all of those, those pig names. Right. <laughs> right. We're calling them, we like to jokingly call them modern heirlooms. Because, of course, that's a non sequitur. But uh, these are new seedling strains or varieties that farmer Brad Gates, who is a local, he's, he's farmed in Sassoon, which is near Fairfield, the Napa Valley. And he's a farmer who started growing heirlooms for the restaurant industry. Now, the Bay Area restaurants love the heirlooms. They're a real marketing thing, and they love the flavor of them. So he would watch, you know, he'd be planting hundreds of a particular variety. When you do that, when, since they're open pollinated, they're not controlled hybrids, a certain number of seedlings, one or 2% will come up that are not morphologically the same as the parent. They're distinctly different somehow. And a lot of people will just rogue those out and throw them away because they want to keep their, you know, their seed strain as pure as possible. He would do the opposite. He would look at that and go, wow, that's interesting. And he would grow it and see if it was good. The next question is, one year seedling doesn't tell you necessarily what the next generation will do. So he would grow them out for three to five years to see if the unique characteristic was stable. And if it was, and it was desirable, he would market it, give it a name. And his whole shtick has been his wild boar farms. I can't remember what the story is behind that. So all of them have names like pork chop, uh, furry red boar, you know, names like that. Uh, they, they all have, they almost all have that pig, pig or boar connotation in the name somewhere. But the key thing is these were selected here in the Sacramento Valley by a farmer who's growing to make money. <laughs> so oh, flavor. going to grow well here. Right. Growing to make money with good tasting tomatoes that he's selling to high-end restaurants. And so that tells you right there that he's selecting things that you as a home gardener will probably could take advantage of. And he has some fascinating ones. Uh, if you know the author, Michael Pollan, for example, who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma and some other food foodie books, uh, he named, a, there was a seedling that came up from uh, a green tiger or one of those, you know, stripy giant fruited tomatoes. The seedling came up with little fruit that looked the shape of a schmoo. A schmoo? Just showed my age right there. A little, little Abner comic strip. Go look, go look it up. <laughs> I'm showing my age. <laughs> they look like an elongated teardrop, okay? And they're striped and mottled, and they're fine green. And they're even better ripe, and it's a fascinating tomato. So he likes stripes. He likes colorful tomatoes. The Wild Boar Farms tomatoes are, are a regional thing in the Sacramento Valley now. And they're becoming a sort of a local phenomenon here in Northern California. One thing about him doing seeds 
selected from open pollinated heirloom tomatoes so that he doesn't control the seed at that point. Anybody who buys one of his tomatoes can save the seed and the seed will come true from that, meaning it'll look very much like, if not identical to the parent. So other seed companies have picked up on some of these and some of the growers in your region, wherever you're listening, might be growing and selling some of the wild boar farms tomatoes. They're our equivalent to heirlooms here in the Sacramento Valley, but they don't have the one thing that you are likely to get from a hybrid, which is the built-in disease resistance. And that was the big step forward with hybridization. Verticillium resistance, fusarium resistance, nematode tolerance, and so forth. That's what hybrids had. They also had reliable yield, and they've been bred by companies like Burpee Seed Company, who know that you want a big, red, firm-textured tomato. That's their breeding goal. So they've been breeding them for the home market rather than for grocery store market or for the, you know, the canning industry. So hybrids have some big advantages. And I always want someone, when people are coming in buying a half dozen tomatoes, you know, the first time they've ever gardened, I want them to go home with some reliable hybrids. I want them to get a cherry tomato because I know that no matter how badly they garden, they'll get something from a cherry tomato. I want them to have something that meets their own special needs. I'll ask things like, well, what do you like to do with your tomatoes? If I hear that they like to make salsa, I'll make sure they get a tomato that's meaty and holds its texture well in a salsa. And I like them to try a couple of heirlooms. And so four to six plants, which is a very large yield of tomatoes in this area, you can balance your portfolio, as I like to say, with a selection from hybrids and heirlooms and some of these new ones and so forth. And try something different every year. Over the years, I, well, of course, I test all these varieties, but I always like to go back and try one I forgot about from years ago and, and try to remember, you know, see whether it really is as good as it's touted. And every now and then I'll find an older one that I hadn't grown for years. But yeah, this really was worth all that hype uh, when it came along. Like Big Beef is a good example. Now, I just said earlier we shouldn't do beefsteak types, but Big Beef is an All-America selection, which means it was tested very widely across the country. It sets under cooler temperature conditions and holds fruit early. So like early girl, it's going to give you a nice early crop and they're large and they're firm textured. And they're very, very good quality. So that's one I hadn't grown for probably almost 20 years. And someone reminded me of it. So I planted them again and now I sell them again. And I tout them as one of those, a good one to add if you want an early fruit type. Another question. If I go outside and look at my fruit trees, there are little tiny fruit on them. Little green, hard rock-like things. Is there anything I need to do now to make sure that I get good fruit on my trees? Thanks for all your help. Uh, yes, there are two things, uh, two types of fruit, I should say, that you might want to take some special extra measures to get good quality. One is the peaches and nectarines, one category, which tend to set very heavily. Peaches and nectarines set all their fruit on last year's growth, what we call new wood. It's actually very recognizable in the winter because it is generally still red and the older wood is gray. And one of the things we do is we prune peaches and nectarines pretty hard during the dormant season uh, to reduce the amount of fruiting wood because they will just way overproduce and the branches will split apart and break. If you ever leave a peach tree or a nectarine tree unpruned, pretty good chance within about the sixth or seventh year, it'll just collapse from the weight of the fruit. And that'll be the beginning of the end with respect to sunburn on the interior, bark, borers getting in and so forth. It's one of the fastest ways to shorten the lifespan of either of those types of trees. Uh, but the other thing is that the fruit quality 
can be improved by some fruit thinning. And most people never get around to this. And I will say that uh, I get lots of fruit on peaches and nectarines without thinning, and they're fine, they're great, they're good quality, they taste good. We're not talking about anything that improves the flavor necessarily here. But thinning the fruit will give you better fruit size and also will reduce the propensity for pests and diseases to get in where the fruit is crowded together. If you have a problem with European earwigs in your area, for example, as we do here, if fruit are clustered close together on the branch where they're touching, it's very common for the earwigs to get in that, that protected area between the fruit, nestle in there, start burrowing into the fruit just before or as it ripens, and give you a rather unpleasant surprise when you bite into it. More to the point, again, these are types of fruit trees that set very heavily and will regulate the size of the fruit based on the amount of the fruit. So if you want bigger peaches and bigger nectarines, as the fruit gets to about oh, the size of a quarter to a 50 cent piece, let's, let's go with a quarter, the old rule of thumb is to thin them out so that they're about one fist apart down the branch. In other words, three to four inches apart down the branch. That allows each fruit room to develop properly and get better quality. It's not necessary. It's not essential. It's nothing that uh, you know makes the flavor better, but it does make for bigger fruit and uh, fewer blemishes, fewer pest problems. The other group of fruit trees that will definitely need some attention if you live anywhere where they're grown widely is apples which will get the coddling moth, the worm that gets in the fruit, if you don't do something to spray for it. Pretty much guaranteed that if you live anywhere that apples are grown, as years go by and they start fruiting more and more, at some point the coddling moth will find your trees and start ovipositing, laying eggs on the very, very, very young apples. The worms of the coddling moth will burrow in, and that is the classic worm that's inside the apple. They are a tough one to control, and I have an article about it on my website, redwoodbarn.com. Also great resources wherever you live, wherever you're listening. It's almost a certainty that your local college extension service, cooperative extension service, has information about how to control coddling moth. And if you really are into uh, degree days modeling and uh, entomological um, um, uh, research, you'll find a lot of detailed information about how farmers, orchardists, deal with coddling moth. Simplest way for home gardeners is to go down to your garden center right about the time the blossom petals are on the ground, right as it's finishing the, first, the full bloom. Uh, that's the most common earliest time that the coddling moth's flights are happening and the female moths are laying eggs on the fruit. But the traps will tell you for sure. These are pheromone traps that you hang up in the tree. Pretty easy to assemble. And you monitor them each day. And at some point, you'll start finding these rather drab little moths. Be sure to look up what they look like because they're not very interesting looking and they're rather small. So check out what they look like and start checking the traps. And once that happens, it's once they're there, it's time to go ahead and start spraying. Commercially, they use all kinds of interesting, well-known insecticides. Home gardeners can use an organic spray called Spinosad. And that gives reasonably good results. And most people find two to four applications at intervals of two to three weeks apart from the first time you find them in the trap, say two to four applications will knock down the population to the point where a lot of your apples won't have worms in them. That sounds like a hassle, doesn't it? Well, it is. And uh, getting apples free of worms is a challenge. It's one of the real limiting factors for home gardeners that I've found in terms of talking to people about fruit trees when they want to buy them is explaining that when you buy this tree, I want people to know which fruit trees are going to be more work than others. 
Yeah, I don't want them to go plant an apple tree and then think they're just going to walk out there and pick perfectly unblemished, worm-free apples from it uh, without doing anything. I almost guarantee in this area and anywhere that apples are grown that the codling moth is going to show up. But a very simple mechanical method that home gardeners can do, obviously not practical for orchardists, but you can protect individual fruit. You can bag them. There's a variety of ways you can do that. You'll find excellent YouTube videos for how to bag apples to protect them from coddling moth. Simplest is just to take a number four sandwich bag, paper bag, slip it over the fruit when, before it's been overposited on, which is why you need that pheromone trap. Fold it over, staple it, and the fruit will develop inside the paper bag. And no, the coddling moth is very unlikely to come along and get into the bag to overposit at that point. They're not the brightest insects out there. Uh, there are special bags you can buy for your, your honey who's an uh, uh, apple tree enthusiast. You can buy them and make a great Christmas present that you slip over the, the, bag, the apple and just cinch it up tight. But another method is to use uh, simple uh, Ziploc plastic bags and put them over the apple. Uh, in the case of the plastic bag, because it's clear and moisture could develop, general recommendation is to snip off the corners of the bottom so that any moisture that does collect will drain out. Once again, no evidence that the coddling moth is going to wiggle its way in there. They want to go right to an apple they can see and overposit on without having to fuss about it. So I've talked to people who do this, and uh, they all tell me that it's not that difficult you know, I remember watching one woman who'd done 25, 30 apples with a bag. And I said, is that kind of a hassle? And she said, well, it's no more of a hassle really than getting out a sprayer and mixing up the pesticide and getting up on a ladder and spraying thoroughly and hoping for the best. She said, and I feel more comfortable about it anyway. And she knew at least those 25 or 30 apples would be worm free. So bagging apples to prevent coddling moth is a simple way that you can get at least a couple dozen perfectly good worm free apples. And then the ones that do have worms in them, well, it's just one worm typically tunneling around in there. This isn't like the cherry fly thing where it's just wriggling with maggots. Uh, it's one you can cut around it and still use the rest of the apple just fine. So I would say of all the fruit trees you're likely to grow, the ones that could benefit from a little attention, peaches and nectarines, fruit thinning, and then apples to take some kind of action, whatever you prefer, mechanical or otherwise, to get rid of the coddling moth or prevent the coddling moth from getting into the fruit. Now that more people are staying home, it seems like folks want to have flowers in the house. And I was wondering what plants we could plant that would bloom inside, indoor plants. Now I know about African violets because I've got a bunch of those. But other than that, what would be nice to have inside? Like if you were in an apartment or someplace where you can't have an outdoor garden. It's actually surprisingly challenging. Uh, you mentioned African violets, and if you actually get into them, they're in the family Gisneriaceae, which has a lot of other very interesting members. So if you happen to be good at African violets, you might look at some of the other what we call Gisneriads, including Gloxinias and Episcias and a bunch of other names that I mostly just have the botanical name. So look for a Gisneriad, Gisneriaceae. Uh, and there are specialty growers out there that you can mail order from. Possible that some local garden centers will have them. I've looked all over for them. Would love to have more of them, but uh, they're, they're more of a specialty item. But if you're good with African violets, you might have some fun with those. The other one that's well known for blooming indoors is the peace lily, Spathophyllum. And many people do very well with that plant, whether it blooms or not. It's a very easy to grow indoor foliage plant. And if you have bright enough conditions, uh, certainly when the days are longer and the temperatures are more even, it's a pretty good chance it'll put out a flower. It looks a lot like a calla lily. It is related to the calla lily. 
And in fact, most of our more popular indoor plants, the philodendrons and things like that, are in that same family. Uh, Araceae, which is the family that calla lilies are in. Most of them don't have very interesting flowers, but the spathophyllum or peace lily does have the very, very attractive white flowers. Interestingly, closely related to that and with the same structure of flower, but way more colorful and very tropical looking, are the anthuriums. And my experience with those is they can go for a year or two indoors, these new modern hybrids of anthuriums, much tougher than they, the, the ones we used to try and grow 30, 40 years ago. These new hybrids have nice thick leaves that are attractive. The flowers hold on for weeks and weeks and weeks. New ones will come out for quite a while. It's not a very long, long, long-term indoor plant. My experience is they kind of slowly decline after about a year to a year and a half, but that's a long time to get bloom out of something indoors that's that tropical looking and that interesting. And the other category is outdoor plants that might bloom indoors. First, I'd look for things with cool foliage. And in that category, you've got the begonias. Begonias have very interesting, bright, colorful leaves. The Rex begonias are very cool with mottled patterns and stripes, and some of them are practically iridescent. And the cane begonias and some of the other rhizome-forming begonias, these are not the bedding begonias, or so-called fibrous begonias, that people plant for shade bedding annuals. These are not the tuberous begonias that people grow in pots for the great big showy flowers. These are begonias that people grow for the foliage, but many of them will bloom. And many of them will actually bloom indoors with very pretty white or pale pink or even rather bright pink flowers. The dragon wing series, for example, or Irene Nuss or some of these other named cultivars. There are hundreds and hundreds of varieties of begonias available. And generally speaking, they're actually pretty tough indoor plants. Uh, the key is that not all of them will bloom indoors, but at least they'll give you colorful foliage. So... I would look at some of those. You'll find them at most garden centers now because they've become a very hot item. Most of the uh, houseplant gardeners who have ex explored through peperomias and money plant and some of the other interesting novelty items have moved on to things like begonias. And it's one that I'm happy to sell to people who are fairly new to gardening because begonias have uh, ability to store a lot of moisture in their stem and in the leaf. So they're functionally like succulents in some ways, even though they're more tropical plants. They can take a fair bit of neglect. They can go surprisingly dry between waterings. And if you happen to have it in a pretty bright window, there's a good chance that some of these begonias will bloom for you. I generally bring, I have a collection of about 20 that live out on my front porch. I generally bring the ones that I'm most concerned about inside when we get to around Thanksgiving because I'm concerned about frost damaging them. I know they will be damaged at about 30 degrees. And uh, the front porch is just barely protected enough for them to survive the winter, but they certainly don't look good by the end of it in our climate here in USDA Zone 9, Sunset Zone 14. I'll bring a couple of them in and put them in a sunny south-facing window just because the foliage looks so nice. And almost every winter, at least one of them comes into bloom and gives you these very pretty pale pink flowers. And it's not always the same one. These are different varieties that do this. So look for some of the Rex begonias for colorful foliage, not for the flowers in that particular case. Look for the cane begonias and the rhizomaceous, rhizomatous begonias that might give you little clusters of flowers as well as the attractive and interesting foliage. So there aren't that many things that bloom indoors except for the seasonal things like Christmas cactus and uh, the, the 
the florist items that people bring indoors and get a few weeks of bloom out, out of them and then you know put them back outside. Uh, but there are a few of these plants, like the African violet, like the peace lily, like some of the begonias, like the uh, anthuriums, that can give you a pretty long season of color indoors. Here's another listener who is gardening for the first time in a long time. I have one sunny spot. It's a half barrel on a bench next to my back door on the south side of the house. I have planted a tomato in it, and I'd like to know whether or not it's okay to plant some potatoes in the same pot. There's plenty of room for them to trail down onto the patio, so I thought maybe that would work. What do you think? Uh, the honest answer is that I don't think that the potato will compete successfully with the tomato. Uh, tomato roots are quite vigorous and in the ground will go three to four feet deep and quite wide. Uh, most people don't visualize that when they're planting them in a container. They will fill the container. And I can tell you, having planted tomatoes in successively smaller and smaller containers as an experiment to see what size container is the absolute smallest that you can get good results in, a uh, 15 gallon container, the kind of thing you might buy a, a tree in, a 15 gallon nursery container will work well for a tomato and it will be fully root bound in that 15 gallon container by about mid to late July in our climate. And from that point forward, you'll be watering it, not necessarily every day, unless it's very hot, but probably every other day. And anything in there trying to compete with it is simply going to find its roots can't hold their own against the roots of the tomato. Now, some things like basil, that's fine. You'll still get foliage. You'll still have things that you can use. So I very commonly would stick uh, either bush basil, the little spicy globe basil, one of my favorites, or some little plant like that in with the tomato at the time of planting. And yeah, by July or August, it's definitely getting out competed, but there's still foliage here that you can use to season your, your cooking with. But the potato would grow, and my guess is because of the competition from the tomato plant, it simply wouldn't have enough energy, enough uh, root zone to make the things you're growing it for, which is the tubers. Just for fun, though, look online at the tomato potato graft called Ketchup and Fries, which came out a couple of years ago. This was one of these novelty items where it is, it is true that you can graft a tomato plant onto a potato plant because they are closely related. And if you do that, you will get a tomato on top that will produce fruit and a potato below that will produce potatoes. Those who have grown them have told me that it was odd and that the yield wasn't that high from either, but it was fun to do because it just sort of dumbfounded people that you could get potatoes and tomatoes from the same plant. But getting back to your actual question, you got to be very careful when you're planting things together in containers uh, that they're not going to outcompete each other. When there's root competition in the ground, roots will keep exploring outward and downward uh, if they possibly can. And then the only issue with having things too close together typically is the shading of one plant over another plant. But when they're in a container, a confined situation like you're describing, generally speaking, one plant will outdo the others. Uh, in fact, it can be pretty extreme. And as my best example of this, unrelated to tomatoes and potatoes, but just for fun, I took a three gallon plastic nursery pot, filled it with the richest soil that we sell and planted six beets, regular old beets plants in it together. And they grew fine if you were growing beets for foliage, for beet greens, for cooking the greens, it would have been great. 
Within about two months, it was pretty clear that a couple of them were struggling and the others were winning, you might say. And ultimately, uh, just recently, I harvested the one beet that prevailed. It was huge. I gave it to my son. He loves beets and it was about six inches in diameter. So it was a giant beet and he uh, was delighted with that. But it did demonstrate that the roots of plants go further and deeper uh, wider and deeper than you expect, and they compete with each other if they are in a confined situation. So the short answer to your question is that, uh, no, I don't think it's going to work very well, but there are other things you can plant in there with the tomato plant. One option, if you are still purchasing your tomatoes, would be to look for a tomato that's much smaller, such as patio or some of the husky series, uh, which are small, compact plants. And if your container was big enough, like the size of an oak barrel, you know, wine barrel, and there's enough soil volume there, you're talking about roughly three cubic feet of soil, I suspect a, a truly dwarf tomato planted with a normal potato would be, they'd be compatible enough that you get yield off of both of them. Other than that, I suspect the tomato would win. We got another question here from David in Antioch. Thank you for your continued assistance. Your show has made me a far better gardener. Great, thank you. Uh, last year you suggested I hard prune three citrus trees due to drought and pest damage. The kefir lime, blood orange, and oro blanco tree have rebounded well. That's an extreme thing to do, by the way. It was a u unique situation. Don't necessarily rush out and prune back your citrus hard. If you've got questions about that, this is me interjecting this. Uh, send them to us and we can talk about it. All of them have new green leaves and are blossoming. The concern is how to protect the trees going forward. My spider mite nemesis is back. The older leaves exhibit spots and yellowing. There's unaddressed bark splitting. I've included photos of the Oro Blanco. Your suggestions are appreciated. Uh, when I was gardening in coastal Southern California, spider mites were an ongoing kind of chronic problem. And down there, it was a different kind of spider mite than we have here in the Sacramento Valley. In the valley, uh, and this I think holds true for spider mites in general, we see a steady increase in spider mites as the weather gets hotter and dustier on plants which are susceptible to them. We also see a steady increase in spider mite predators, predaceous mites, and other things that feed on the spider mites. So in most situations, the spider mites don't get out of balance and you don't see a significant problem from them. But when we had, for example, serious fires in the area a couple of years ago, and a lot of soot and dust was settling on, on plants. There was an outbreak of spider mites. They like that kind of a dusty leaf surface. It gives them ability to get hold better and make their webbing and establish their population better. So a very simple method for managing spider mites in general here in the valley is to rinse the plants off very vigorously. The same thing we recommend for so many other pest problems is a good vigorous rinse on a regular basis will reduce the dust and literally directly blast off the spider mites themselves. And yes, of course, they'll land and settle again, just like aphids will when you wash them off. But the predaceous mites are much bigger, faster moving, and uh, more versatile about getting around than little tiny spider mites are. So once you have an increasing population of predaceous mites and other spider mite predators, washing off the plant, let's just say once a week, a very vigorous rinsing once a week to get dust off will make a big difference. Um, a good example of that is in the orchard next door to me. I live on a farm. We have almonds and walnuts on our farm, and our neighbor had almonds for years. Spider mites are a pretty serious problem on almond trees. They actually can get bad enough in some situations to reduce the leaf photosynthesis and uh, stress the trees pretty badly and even affect yield. So there's all kinds of miticides, spider mite killers, that they use. 
But the problem is that spider mites can develop resistance to any miticide very quickly. Anyone who's managing spider mites, whether it's in a greenhouse or an orchard situation, knows that you have to rotate your materials. Be very careful not to just repeatedly use the same pesticide over and over, or else you'll very quickly develop resistance within the population to that pesticide. But they also know, as with any integrated pest management approach, that you can look at the increasing pest, monitor the population. First thing, identify the pest, monitor the population, establish a treatment threshold, but first... Look at a factor in the environment that you might be able to deal with that could reduce the population growth sufficiently that natural predators can come along and, and give you the control you're after. And one of the simplest things my neighbor did, he had a chronic problem with spider mites along his driveway, his long mile plus long gravel driveway. The trees along the driveway always got spider mites first and worst. And so that's what he would monitor that would trigger him to go out and spray. But he finally realized his trucks were going back and forth. He has a processing plant there as well, kicking up dust. And the problem always showed up in August, particularly when they were harvesting the almonds and trucks were going back and forth, kicking up dust. So the first thing he did was he just started watering down the roads, getting a, a water truck and watering down the roads to reduce the dust. And then finally, when he had a little extra money, he went ahead and paved the long driveway, and the spider mite problem magically disappeared. So the biggest factor in the case of his population on his particular crop was the amount of dust that was being kicked up in the environment. I look at a lot of pictures of citrus that are being grown in what look to be backyard deserts. I've taken to using that term where it's a young citrus tree planted surrounded by nothing but bare bark, bark mulch on the surface. And a couple things to remember about bark. Bark is hydrophobic. It, uh, it doesn't absorb moisture. It doesn't break down and improve the soil. It does shade the soil, and it does provide some of the benefits of mulch in that regard. But it, uh, it actually can kind of increase the heat and dust in a zone compared to what, say, compost would do. So one thing you can do to reduce the dust is increase the moisture on the bark itself. Rather than watering with drip underneath the bark all the time, find a way to water most of the time, but not doing it all the time, wash off the bark. Wash it down to reduce the dust that's literally coming up off of that surface. Or spread out some finer particle compost and wash that in so that it's helping to make an environment that's a little more moist and a little less dusty and dry. And then just the simplest is to get out there, and this goes for almost anywhere you're listening where it's not real humid. Anywhere you're listening where it's fairly dry in the afternoon, go out and wash plants off really vigorously every so often. It greatly reduces aphids, greatly reduces white flies and greatly reduces spider mite problems. One of the simplest things you can do. If you're listening in an area where it's humid in the afternoon, uh, then you probably need to do it as early in the day as possible because of course washing plants off in areas with constant humidity or summer rainfall could increase fungus problems and disease problems of other types. But if you're in a dry area, uh, it's one of the simplest things you can do. It gets the surface moist, it reduces the dust, it helps the compost on the soil break down, it knocks down the pest problems, it makes a better habitat for some of those beneficial insects like the leatherwing beetles that need a moist interface of decomposing compost and soil in order to uh, go through their larval cycle. Uh, it has a lot of benefits. I think that a pressure washer is a fun way to go. And remember, you control the throttle. You're not going to strip the foliage off unless you choose to do so. Uh, or just a hose with a good nozzle. One of the simplest things that any gardener can get that can make pest control easier is get one of those good quality brass nozzles that can go on the end of your hose that allows you to rinse things off vigorously 
wash the undersides of the leaves and give your whole garden a shower every so often. This is not a substitute for your watering. It sort of augments it, uh, but it can be a, a part of a way to make your drip irrigation system more effective and it can greatly reduce pest problems. Uh, we get a lot of questions about yellowing on citrus leaves in the late winter and early spring. And most of it's perfectly natural. This is just the same thing we see on broadleaf evergreens and even conifers of all types. As the new growth pushes out, which varies from as early as February in the case of coast redwoods to early, uh, well, I won't say early summer, late spring in the case of the more subtropical plants like citrus, they mobilize the nitrogen from the older leaves up to where the new growth is occurring. And as they mobilize it, they just shed older leaves and some of them yellow and that's fine. And sometimes you get interesting discolorations. Uh, camellias in particular will get odd mottled pattern and people think it's a virus or something. No, it's just a, just a normal, normal redistribution of nitrogen and shedding of two, three, four year old leaves. In the case of citrus, it can be quite visible. It's an easy way to remind yourself to fertilize because that's telling you that the plant is using nitrogen. You don't necessarily need to apply nitrogen just because you see the new growth coming on, but that's a good time to do it if you're going to. And uh, it's just, it's nothing to be concerned about, but it does disconcert people. If we've had a very wet winter, a lot of rainfall, presumably some of the extra fertilizer has been leached out of the root zone. Sometimes it's more extreme in those situations. But for the most part, just as in your pictures, the leaves yellowing that I see there are perfectly natural uh, as part of the life cycle of the plant putting on new growth. If new growth is yellowing, you probably have a micronutrient deficiency. If old growth is yellowing, it's usually nitrogen related. It might be an indicator that it's a good time to apply nitrogen, or it might just be part of the natural growth cycle of the plant. So what about spider mites on house plants? Because they're a pretty common indoor pest prop. Well, it's the same principle. Your indoor environment is dusty and drier than almost all of the things that we grow as house plants would be accustomed to. And uh, the dust and the low humidity make it make very fertile uh, environment for spider mites to get a hold and get established. One thing I've learned over the years is that there's some house plants that are just chronically susceptible to spider mites and some house plants that basically never get them. If you look closely at the leaf type, you'll see that the ones that almost never get them tend to have a very glossy leaf surface and uh, the ones that get them tend to have somewhat perhaps fuzzier, well, not necessarily fuzzy, but a, a, a coarser leaf surface that spy, tiny spider mites can get a hold of and start spinning their webs on. So I long ago just stopped carrying as a retailer certain house plants because of their chronic susceptibility to spider mites, various types of Diefenbachias, the regular old-fashioned Schefflera. Uh, I just don't want to have them because I don't want people to take them home. Of the, one of the worst, Eureka Palm, uh, that, that big, bold palm that they sell at very, very low prices at discount places. One of the worst house plants there is, honestly. It gets all kinds of problems. And one of the worst problems it gets is spider mites, making it very unsightly. The management principle is the same as what I was talking about with trees, which is that you can take these outside in mild weather and rinse them off very vigorously. Or if you live in an apartment or someplace where that's not practical, perhaps do it in your shower where you might have a handheld shower nozzle. Use warm or cold water, not blazing hot water. And you just rinse them and rinse them and rinse them to knock off the spider mites and clean the surface. Better, though, is to just look for houseplants that don't get them. 
And uh, there's most of the philodendrons almost never get spider mites. I rarely see a problem on ficus of any kind. Uh, it can happen on the new growth on ficus, but they barely get attached and they don't seem to do too much damage. It's still a good idea with a lot of your shinier leafed house plants to wash them off every week, two weeks, three weeks, uh, just to clean them up and get the dust off the surface. And it reduces the likelihood that they might get spider mites. It's just the simplest way to manage them. There's um, some outdoor plants that are sometimes brought indoors, like ivy is sometimes used as an indoor plant, chronically susceptible to spider mites. One of the simplest things to do is just put it back outside. Uh, we do that when we have them, and uh, we find that there's so many predaceous mites outside, and the rate of increase of the spider mites slows due to the outdoor conditions. Uh, that the problem solves itself, whereas indoors it's just a chronic pest problem. So if you get spider mites developing on a houseplant and the symptom is a sort of a grayish uh, appearance on the surface of the leaf, you look on the underside, you see if your, your eyes are good, you'll see webbing and even little what look like crawling specks of dust. 10 power hand lens will show them up real clearly or just tap them out on a piece of typing paper and you'll see them start crawling around on there. Then you rinse them off very vigorously and control them that way. But again, if it's an ongoing problem, I don't think most people with houseplants want to do a lot of pesticide application and it's not very practical anyway. Uh, why don't you just perhaps consider getting a houseplant that is not susceptible? Succulents don't get them. Hoyas don't get them. The begonias we talked about, I've almost never seen a problem on those. Uh, and most of the philodendrons and the peace lilies and things like that. If you go to redwoodbarn.com, my business website, you'll find articles about houseplants. And one of the ways I rank them in one of the articles, which is a chart, is how easy they are. And fundamentally, what that really comes down to is whether they're susceptible to spider mites. That's uh, something I comment on on some of them there. Uh, so if you're looking for houseplants and you're thinking about it and you're kind of new to it, maybe check that article out, redwoodbarn.com. Look at some of the different houseplant articles and you'll see this topic come up. And I just suggest avoiding ones that are chronically susceptible as one of the simplest ways to make your life easier. You're listening to KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. Streaming live on the internet at kdrt.org. Okay, let's wrap up here with the most common question that we're getting at our garden center these days, which is, what's the best tomato? Well, that depends, which isn't an answer that you want to use in retail. That depends. But uh, it does come down to what you primarily like to use them for. What's the best for yield? What's the best for a compact plant in a tight situation? What's the best for and so on and so on. But I do have uh, some best bets. And these are tomato varieties that I think will do well just about anywhere. Uh, so if you're looking for disease resistance and flavor and yield and all that kind of thing, some of these might be suitable for the half dozen or so that you plan on planting. And these are alphabetical, but uh, I'll give a little information about each one. And the first one, I think, is one of the best. Ace has been around forever. Ace tomato, it's a, what we call a determinate plant, means it grows to a certain point and pretty much stops. Gives 20 to 30 fruit in this area. Sweet, uh, often described as low acid, which is, I think, not technically accurate, but it has a milder flavor that some people prefer. And very large, very attractive fruit. I grow Ace every year and I'm always impressed by how reliable it is, how good the fruit is, how attractive it is, which is an interesting you know, characteristic that sometimes gets overlooked in our quest for heirlooms and things like that. Just a nice, big, red, good quality, aromatic, very nice flavored sweet tomato. Uh, it also has verticillium and fusarium resistance 
in it. It's an F1 hybrid. Better Boy and Champion are two of the very best hybrid tomatoes on the market, at least for our area, and I think they'll do pretty well anywhere. Better Boy and Champion are, are similar. Uh, Good-sized fruit, big vines, indeterminate, very productive, loads of fruit in both cases. Slight difference between them. Um, Champion, in my experience here in the Sacramento Valley, continues to set up into the upper 90s uh, during daytime temperatures. Better Boy only into the low 90s. So my yield on Champion is always a little higher than my yield on Better Boy. Other than that, I consider them fairly interchangeable hybrids, good for a lot of different places. Very good, red, flavorful, medium-sized, firm texture. And in both cases, they have a slightly tough skin, which has some advantages for those of you listening in more humid areas where you might have problems with diseases uh, or, or cold nights or things like that causing fruit damage. Both both Better Boy and Champion seem to be widely adaptable. My comment about Champion on an old note is that robust plant to eight feet or more, and that is absolutely true. It's a very vigorous fruit, uh, a very vigorous vine. Um, one of my personal favorites is Castelludo Genovese, because the main thing I do with tomatoes is I cook them. I make them into sauces and salsas, and I freeze that. So it's a, got a nice, firm, meaty texture and a very rich flavor that I'm very partial to. Complaint I get about it is that it softens very quickly. It's an heirloom, so it does not have the built-in disease resistance of many of the hybrids. One of the very best in California and pretty much everywhere, but especially here in Northern California, is Early Girl. Continues to be a popular favorite. There are some new rivals to the throne of Early Girl, Valley Girl, um, uh, and there's a couple of others out there. Not as widely available yet, and the Early Girl still sets the standard for one of the best for setting early, holding the fruit, and also giving in our area a nice late crop of about 48 ounce fruit. Very good flavor. Considered to be one of the best flavored hybrid tomatoes on the market. Um, of the heirlooms, I would mention Mortgage Lifter. Uh, it's a big plant, heavy yields, kind of a pink rather than red, so you got to get used to when to harvest it. Uh, pinker tomatoes tend to be, you know, you're waiting and waiting for them to turn dark red, and they don't. Uh, so we just kind of got to see when the fruit gives a little bit as you squeeze it, and then you'll know it's fully ripe. And it's great for all purposes. It's, a, it's an heirloom indeterminate. It doesn't have the disease resistance, but it does have good yields here in the Sacramento Valley. Uh, two that I would I think most people should not be without if they're looking for high volume are Juliet and Sun Gold. Uh, hard to get in the case of Juliet. That particular seed is, I gather, rather expensive, and so not that many of the growers like to do it. But a phenomenally productive little plum-shaped red fruit that's got real firm texture, so it makes great salsas. You can freeze them whole. Uh, for a lot of people who are just planting one tomato, and you know they're just more casual growers, I like to call it my empty nesters tomato because it's for folks who want to just have one, but they travel and they don't necessarily want to do a whole lot of canning, but they like to have some to put in the freezer. You really can't go wrong with Juliet. And Sun Gold has blown away all the competition in terms of the cherry tomato market. It's uh, sweet and tangy and rich flavored and beautiful and uh, just become one of the most popular cherry tomatoes on the market. I will mention one other in the hybrid category that did very, very well for me in 2019 and previous years, but especially notable last year, it was just my highest producing tomato in the garden, is the old Whopper, Parks Whopper, which has been a reliable, large fruited hybrid in that sort of better boy champion category. 
been around forever. Park Seed Company introduced it years and years ago. Um, good fruit, often over a pound a piece. Great yields and very, very good flavor and uh, nice quality for all kinds of different purposes. So those are kind of the best bets. And then there's a lot of others that you might want to look for and try. Carmelo is a European hybrid with really great flavor. Black Crim and Cherokee Purple are some of the dark purple, pink, purple to red uh, fruit, uh, fruited ones that are very juicy, flavorful. Both of them do very well for us in the valley. Uh, I've got old timers that always ask me for Golden Jubilee yeah, every year. It's the original golden orange fruited tomatoes. Yes, I think there are better ones now, particularly the Chef's Choice Orange. Uh, but you can't go wrong with Golden Jubilee. In the same general category, pineapple is an heirloom that's got beautiful golden orange fruit, very tangy flavor. No, it doesn't taste like a pineapple, but it's got, you know, got a little more acidity to it. So people kind of like that special flavor. Uh, and then there's, you know, all these other heirlooms that we talk about all the time, but those are some that have done well for us here. And in particular, among the other heirlooms, uh, I always look out for Amish paste. Yields very well, very meaty texture. Gives me a great late crop for putting up in the freezer, like I mentioned earlier in the program. And in the last few years, I've gone back to growing San Marzano. It was one of my father's favorites, and I remembered it uh, from childhood and decided to grow it again here in the valley. Uh, he grew it in coastal San Diego, did great down there. Does great here in the valley, does great pretty much anywhere, so I'm told. It's got a little tougher skin, so if the weather is getting colder and you're rushing to harvest some of the other uh, tomatoes, that one could probably go a little colder at night and, and resist damage. And it freezes beautifully and makes wonderful sauce. And then if I were looking for one unique European gourmet tomato to add to your collection, it's a Czech variety called Stupica. Stupis is the way it's spelled. And it has really, really flavorful fruit. Loads of them. I mean, very large volume of fruit. It has an odd characteristic of greening on the shoulders of the fruit, which would make it undesirable for a commercial standpoint. But it's a very compact plant. If you don't have much room, Stupicha is one you might consider if your local garden center has it. Hard to find. You might want to grow it yourself um, and try that one. So going through that list, you'd have some there that would be reliable, cherry tomatoes like Sun Gold, or you can plant Sweet Million or Sweet 100 or something like that. You'd have some hybrids, you'd have some heirlooms. As I always like to say, balance your portfolio. So once again, we welcome your questions at davisgardenshow at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California. I think to myself, what a wonderful world.